Today we're finishing up our study here in the book of Philippians, and if you looked at your bulletin, you'll see the title of the message is Gospel Partnership, the Gospel's Impact on Our Wallets, Our Worship, and Our Well-Being. So you know I'm about to talk about money, and I have to ask this question from the, from the outset, what is it about asking people to give money in church that seems to be so distasteful for so many of us? Have you noticed that? Few things seem to irritate Americans quite like a pastor asking his congregation to give to the offering plate. And there's reasons why, I'm sure. I've asked a few myself. Maybe it's because we've seen high-profile cases of abuse, which is true. It's an unfortunate truth, but it's a truth. Maybe it's, it's more that our beef is with just hypocrisy in general, uh, and, and, and so this hypocrisy in, in the idea of giving, it just sort of, it, it takes deep root there. That seems like an area where hypocrisy can really grow. And yet I would ask this, can't we find hypocrisy in lots of issues within the church? And their answer to that is, unfortunately, yes, we can because we're sinful people, right? We're sinful people. We will fail to live up to the, the example of Christ in all things that we do. So hypocrisy is... It's everywhere. But money tends to make us cringe. This issue of money, or talking about money, makes us cringe like no other issue. And, and maybe you saw the title of the message in the bulletin when you came in this morning and you thought, I'm glad I didn't invite my neighbor today, right? And those of you who are new here this morning, you might be thinking, oh, is that what this church is all about? Uh, no, it's not. What, what we're all about is we're all about teaching through books of the Bible from start to finish, which is a good way to keep us all uh, accountable to dealing with what God's Word says when it says it, <laughs> right? So that's a good thing. Um, but you say, well, why can't we just talk about love this morning? Why can't we talk about something else? Why not money? Well, here's the reason why. The Bible talks about money like 800 times. So if we're going to go through the Bible, we're going to run into this topic uh, 800 times. At least, right? And this passage today is one of those times. Philippians 4, verses 10 to 20. It's a passage that talks about giving. It's a passage where Paul is addressing the Philippian church's financial giving to the missional church planting work that he was doing. He's thanking them for that. He's addressing that. He's going to do that in some interesting ways, which we'll talk about here. But remember that this is a letter, this book that this, this, that Paul wrote to a specific church in Philippi, and it's a thank you letter. If you go back to the beginning of the book, you see that in chapter 1, verse 5, he begins by thanking them for partnering together in the gospel ministry. And they had sent to him a material gift. They had been supporting him uh, in this ministry that he'd been doing, again, going around preaching the gospel, planting churches. He'd been imprisoned, and that's where he is now as he's writing this letter, and they're ministering to him materially, financially, even now as he sits in this jail cell. They'd sent him this gift through one of their own, a man named Epaphroditus. So I want you to get notice as we get ready to read this passage that even in Paul's day, as he's, as he's addressing this gift and he's, he's giving them thanks for that, the way he talks about it is, is still a little bit, I don't want to use the word awkward, but it's almost awkward. He doesn't actually say thank you 
In fact, some scholars have said this is the thankless thank you letter, right? He talks about it in a way that, that you, you, you almost get this impression that maybe he's uncomfortable with the subject as well, or maybe he anticipates that they'll be uncomfortable with the subject. And look at the text and see if you can pick up what I'm getting at. Verse 10 of chapter 4. He says, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have received your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I've learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low. I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I've learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. And yet it was kind of you to share my trouble. And you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. I've received full payment and more. I'm well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. So again, awkward is probably a strong word to use there, but did you, did you kind of pick up just some of the, the, the language there that, that he uses where it, it, he's saying things like, I didn't really need this. Thanks for, thank you for doing that, but he doesn't actually really say thank you. He just says, I'm grateful you had an opportunity to do this, but I didn't really need it, but I'm glad that you did it. And I don't know if there's awkwardness in there or not. I wish we could read more tone into text when we read these passages. But if, if there is awkwardness, if there is any hemming and hawing there, is it because Paul has a hard time as a pastor asking for money from the church like most pastors do? Or is it maybe that this church has these sort of hang-ups about talking about church, uh, money in church like, like we do? I have no idea. I don't know what the first century context was like when it comes to subjects like that. I can't say with any certainty what the perceptions were here. But I, I, I guess we should be able to say this with confidence. Paul is, is calculated and intentional in his words, right? So I, I don't think he's really hemming and hawing here. I think what he's doing is something instead like this. He's teaching them something important about their money. And specifically, how the gospel, that's been such a strong theme throughout this whole letter, ties in with their giving, Right? He's talking about living their lives in a manner worthy of the gospel. This is, a, this is a book that's just full of gospel truth and gospel application. And I think he's ending here by talking about how the gospel ties in with their giving. And I want to come back to that when we come back to the text. But before we dive further into the text, I think it's important to spend maybe a little bit of time asking this question again. Why is it so difficult for us as 21st century Americans to talk about giving money, and church in the same sentence. Why is it so difficult for us to do that? And to do that, I'm going to talk about some things that Paul doesn't bring up here, but I think we need to, 
to bring them up and talk about them before we come back to Philippians 4. And, and, and the reason for that is I, I hope that this, and, I, and I, 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 I believe that this will help us grasp the authorial intent of his tying the gospel into giving in a way that, that will benefit us all. So why is it so awkward to talk about giving money in the church? Here's my theory. And I say theory, uh, but I'm, I'm, I'm actually more convinced than that. I, this is a theory that I, I think is true. The reason I believe people get so offended when you talk about money in church is the same reason why Muslims would be offended if you talked about Jesus in a mosque. Or Jews would be offended if we brought up the New Testament and a synagogue. Or why Mormons would be offended if we brought up uh, Allah, right? Here's what I'm getting at. You, you can't pit two gods against each other without causing friction. And for many Americans... Money is a powerful God. Money is a powerful God. It's what the Bible would call an idol. And, and this, this, this idol is a primary idol in our culture. I mean, you think about all the things that we can turn into an idol. And by idol, I mean this something that, that we would place as, as of greater worth and greater importance than God. Something that we would look to or someone that we would look to for our security, our, our deliverance, right, our comfort, rather than God. That's an idol. Money is a, is a primary idol in our culture because it's, it's often our money or our finances or that security that sort of defines our self-worth, right? It's often that, that's, that, that, that defines our identity. What's your, what's your, financial status and how does that play into your overall sense of well-being and so if that is so wrapped into who we are or where we find comfort or security or self-worth or any of those things and we're then asked to put that on the altar of another god the true god uh, it's going to pose a grave threat to our hearts so I don't think that we actually would recognize that often. I don't think we would admit it often. But I think that's why our hearts can react so negatively when we have this appropriately biblical call to give our money to the Lord at church. I hope that makes sense. We might, and I think we do make lots of excuses to justify our hesitancy to give. We might say things again like, well, we distrust people, the people who are handling that. Uh, there, again, there's the potential for hypocrisy and abuse. But, but if we're honest with ourselves, more often than not, those excuses probably boil down to a lack of trust in God himself. Now, I want to clarify that. If you know of a situation where people who are handling money, specifically within a church, are mishandling that, do something about that, okay? I'm not saying ignore that. I'm not saying it's a lack of trust in God to keep giving money to, to the stewardship of bad stewards. But, I, but I'm saying generally, in, in, a, in a healthy church context, it's probably more an issue of a lack of trust in God. 
because he's not effectively serving as your God in the moment. Something else is. And it's money that's so often deeply tied to empowering whatever that other thing might be. Jesus said something very similar in Luke chapter 16. It's much like what was read earlier from Matthew. He said, No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. That's what Joey read from Matthew. But then there's a continuation here. The Pharisees, who were lovers of money, heard these things, and they ridiculed him. And he said to them, You are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts. For what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. That's a challenge I think we all need to hear. There's, a, there's an excellent book uh, that Tim Keller wrote several years ago called Counterfeit Gods. And he, in that book, he does a really good job of explaining just how money can serve as an idol in our lives. And he, he does that by talking about this concept that actually, I think I mentioned this just a few weeks ago in, in, a, in another context, but he, he talks about deep idols and surface idols. I don't know if you remember me talking about that a, a few weeks ago, but, but he, he talks about it in this way, specifically in regards to money. He says, sin in our hearts affects our basic motivational drives, so they become idolatrous, deep idols. Some people are strongly motivated by a desire for influence and power while others are more excited by approval and appreciation. Some want emotional or physical comfort more than anything else, while still others want security, the control of their environment. So he's saying these are the, these are the deep things that, that drive much of what we do. It's those, it's those inner longings for control or comfort or peace or security, right? And he says each deep idol, power, approval, comfort, control, generates then a different set of fears and a different set of hopes. Surface idols, on the other hand, are things like money, our spouse, our children, through which these deep idols will seek that fulfillment. For example, money can be a surface idol that seeks to satisfy more foundational impulses. Some people want lots of money as a way to control their world, to control their life. Others want money for access to social circles and to make themselves beautiful and attractive. Other people want money because it gives them so much power over other people. In every case, he says, money serves as an idol. And yet because of various deep idols, it results in very different patterns of behavior. So, so I think there's a good challenge there for us to consider when we think about how, does, how is money affecting our hearts. It may not be the same for all of us. In other words, you might be able to see how how money is a root of all evil in certain people in certain ways and say, well, it doesn't affect me that way, but it might be affecting you in a very different way. What is it that you're using? How are you using this this thing that, that, that has, no pun intended, so much currency in our culture to prop up the things that, that will fill your, your deep heart needs for comfort, security, acceptance, etc.? How does your money do that? The bottom line is the same, however it does it. Because we so often use money as a means to establish that sense of self-worth, security, identity, etc. Our money becomes a type of savior to us. 
It becomes a type of Savior to us that we can then put our trust in. We can attempt to put our trust in. In other words, we will seek to put our hope and our trust in our wallets. And that is the exact attitude that Jesus speaks of when he says, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Do you understand, in other words, that your wallets and your worship are intrinsically tied together? So, this is where the gospel comes in to show us where our greatest treasure lies. This is how the gospel speaks in a very applicable way to our hearts. As our hearts are gripped by, by looking to something in this world to provide that comfort and security and sense of worth, the gospel speaks in and says, don't you see that your money has a weakness? It's powerless to save you. It's powerless to provide you with that worth, security, and identity that you seek. It can't, it can't fill the gap. It can't fill the hole. Now, the gospel tells us that, and I'll, I'll come back to how it does that, but, but, but even practical experience tells us that. Does it not? There's a recent study in the journal Psychological Science that addressed how economic status is not a sufficient gauge of well-being. Here's what they said. They said, while wealth has tripled over the past 50 years, well-being has been flat. Mental illness has increased at an even more rapid rate. And data, not just nostalgic reminiscences, data indicate that the social fabric is more frayed than it was in financially leaner times. Speaking of financially leaner times... You think back to like the, the Great Depression. Franklin Delano Roosevelt said this at that time. He says, It's an un unfortunate human failing that a full pocketbook often groans more loudly than an empty stomach. All right, I will. He says, It's an unfortunate human failing that a full pocketbook often groans more loudly than an empty stomach. In other words... Your money, a full wallet, isn't going to solve your problems. It might create more of them, right? More modern times, David Geffen said this, anybody who thinks money will make you happy hasn't got money. David Geffen's net worth uh, estimated uh, in 2019 was $8 billion. So we've all heard statements like that, right? You've heard quotes like that before. We, we turn the news on and we see the... The, the, the crash and burn story of some rich and famous person who had all the money in the world but needed something more to make them happy. We see those things all the time. And it informs this reality. These deep idols are very cruel gods. They're cruel because they're never satisfied. They're never satisfied. They promise peace. They promise security. But they can't deliver because they're operating under the wrong kind of currency. These longings for more, by the way, they're not wrong. Your deep longings for more are not wrong. We know we're meant for something far greater than what we're experiencing. You were meant for more than what you are experiencing the thing is, is we have to understand that our lackings, our deficiencies, can't be made up by material means because they're not material problems. Ultimately, they're not material problems. 
They're spiritual ones. So these surface idols cannot appease the deep idols because these deep idols are rooted in the heart. They're rooted in the soul of of humanity. And so if you've got the wrong kind of currency, you'll never be able to satisfy those debts. So again, deep idols are vicious gods because I never do enough to pay my deficit. So again, the gospel says something very different. It tells a very different story. It's a wonderful story. It's called good news because it provides us with a comprehensive understanding and a solution for this deficit. The gospel informs us of the true source of joy. What were you created for? Who were you created for? There's a God who made you, right? There's a God who made us in his image. There's a God who made us in that likeness of, of, of giving and love and invites us to, to fellowship with him in love for him and love for one another. I mean, the Garden of Eden is a, is a picture of what we were made for. And yet the gospel also explains what went wrong. Why, why aren't we all living that way? Well, because this one whom we were created for, we were separated from by our own sin. This selfishness that wants to turn back to self, this wants, that wants to take and grasp for self, that wants to find security in other things, that's sin. Sin has separated me from God, and it's true for all of us. Ecclesiastes 7.20, Surely there is not a righteous person on earth who does good and never sins. Romans 3.23, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And 6.26 says, The wages of that sin is death. So the problem for all of us now is that there's only two ways for us to, to make up for this this lack. We've got this separation. We've got this sin. We've got this wage of death that's looming over us. There's only two things that we can do to make up for that deficit. We either somehow live the perfect life. We, we, we renounce selfishness completely and, and perfectly reflect this image of God. Or if we can't do that, we, we face the wage of death. We bear the wrath just of God the just wrath of God, I should say, for our punishment. And, and, and if those are our two options, here's, here's really bad news. You can't do either one. You can't do either one. You cannot live the perfect life. And you can't bear the punishment because death is death. The gospel then comes to its high point here and says, here's God's solution for your need. God incarnates. That's what we just celebrated at Christmas. He comes to us. And he comes in the flesh so that he can live this perfect life that we can't live. And by living that perfect life, it's not just an example, something important about that. By by living that perfect life, he, he gains the capital or the currency to pay our debt. By bearing that wrath of God for sin on our behalf at the cross. The perfect one gives of himself for the imperfect and suffers that penalty on our behalf. This this payment to eliminate our debt. And because he's God, he can overcome that penalty. He rises again and conquers it. 
That's the gospel, right? That's the good news. And so when we're presented with a reality like this, when, when, when we're, we're, set, we're able to be set free from these, these entrapments that never satisfy us and are able to gain a God who always satisfies, who meets every need, and by faith we can say, take my debt, take this penalty, take this, this, this errant thinking of mine, this looking for love in all the wrong places, right? And, and restore me and, and make me whole and, and make me new and, and provide the worth that I could never attain, obtain on my own. And he does that. He gives you happiness and security and a sense of identity that's found in Christ. Then these surface idols that you had been living under are exposed as powerless. They're exposed as frauds. And this, this, this worship that I had been giving to them falsely is now transferred and transformed to worship for the one true God who alone is worthy of that worship. Now, if we go back to Philippians 4, with all that in mind, like, like Paul's been pointing them back to the gospel this whole way, right? Re reread it. And see how what he says here is, is sort of come into full focus and clarity. Verse 10, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have received your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. So he's saying here, very simply, I'm rejoicing in the Lord that you were able now to give. You were able to give this gift to me. This is a good thing. This is, this is God's doing in you. And I rejoice at this fact that God has enabled you to give this gift. Why? Because of what it means for the gospel's effect in your life. If your money was something that you were holding on to for your own security and your own identity and your own comfort, you would never have given it to me. You would never have given it to God. But if God is your source, then you can freely now Give, and that's what you've done. And so I rejoice. This means God has done something in you. That's what he's saying in verse 10. And then look at how he, he kind of looks at himself. And he, and, he, and, he, and he sees the gospel's liberating effects in his own life from material idols in verses 11 through 13. He says, not that I'm speaking of being in need. For I've learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low. I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I've learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. I don't have these, these ties now. My security, my identity, my sense of well-being are not tied in whether I have stuff or whether I don't. I've learned how to have stuff. Nothing wrong with having stuff. But I've learned how to not have stuff. Nothing wrong with not having stuff. Here's the thing. I don't find my security in my stuff. I can do everything in Christ. Why? Because he's my security. He's my hope. Verse 14. And yet, even though I, I don't need that, it was kind of you to share my trouble. And you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, again, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. 
Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. Again, not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. I've received full payment and more. I'm well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gift that you sent, which is a fragrant offering. It's a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. In other words, I think what he's saying to the Philippians here is, there's something beautiful about the gospel's transforming work in your lives and in your hearts that's, that exceeds what I've seen in even the other churches. You're getting the gospel in such a way that you were able to give freely. Nobody else was able to do that. Why? I, I mean, I don't know, but I, I can only say positively that this is, a, this is an encouragement to the Philippian church. The grace of God has gripped you so much that you were able to do it. And again, this is a reason for him to give thanks. This is a reason for him to rejoice. And, and this is a reason for him to say that when, you, when the gospel grips you like this and you're able to give of yourself in this way, that in itself, again, the end of verse 18, is a fragrant offering. It is a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. This is the kind of worship God is after, that you would have no other gods before him, Right? that we would look like him as givers. Now, what does that mean for our well-being? Is it scary to give? Not according to what he says in verse 19. He says, and my God will supply every need of yours. According to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. Not according to his riches in glory in the bank, right? This isn't a promise of prosperity. It's a promise of glory. My God will supply all that you need. When you trust him, he cares for you. When, when your money isn't the thing that you cling to, but Christ is, you're in a good place. He'll take care of your needs. So, why is it so difficult for us to listen to a pastor talk about giving in the church? Here's what I want to just encourage us with as we look ahead to the new year. Maybe you're rethinking how you do things. Maybe you've made some resolution, uh, resolutions, right? Maybe you're, you're thinking about your finances. If Jesus is our greatest treasure, and if the gospel becomes for us the message of this great hope, what does it mean for us in terms of partnering in the gospel with our finances? Pray about that. What does it mean, Lord, if Jesus is my great hope, if he's my treasure, how do you want me to partner in the gospel now with my wallet, with my finances, it's going to mean not seeing your money as your greatest treasure, but seeing your money, like all other things, as a means to exalt the one who is your greatest treasure. To exalt the giver is to give as he gives. How you do that, that's between you and the Lord. Okay? But there's some, there's some partnership questions that, that we should be asking. Am I, am I tithing? 
I know that's an Old Testament principle. It's not, it's not eradicated in the New Testament. It's not mentioned in the New Testament. Generosity that exceeds it is mentioned in the New Testament. So am I giving the Lord my first fruits? Am I supporting and partnering in the ministry of the gospel through my local church? Am I meeting needs of brothers and sisters around me who I, I see are, who have less than I have? Is, am, I, am I exhibiting what we see in the early church in the book of Acts where, where, where people were just taking their stuff and their excess and they were just laying it down at the feet of the apostles and saying, care for our brothers and sisters so that no one has need, no one has lack. Am I thinking that way with my finances? Am I being generous? Am I looking to ministry expansion? Am I like, like this church saying, hey, how can we send out people to other places in the, in the globe that need to hear the good news of the gospel? And, and, and are we willing to support that? These are the things that we should be praying about individually and corporately as a church. If Jesus is our greatest treasure, then our finances ought to be a means to bring glory to him as such. So I'll leave that to you and the Holy Spirit and we'll trust that God will make Jesus the great treasure in our lives. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this challenging and encouraging word. So Lord, we just ask you to help us to be faithful. And I, and I say that first and foremost by saying, Lord, give us such a vision of Jesus that he, he becomes more important to us than anything else. Give us such a vision of Jesus. Lord, be, may we find you faithful in meeting every need in Christ. And as such, Lord, make us a people who are givers. Make us a people who are generous. Make us a people who, who support and partner together in the gospel ministry that this world so desperately needs. All these, these people around us who are, who are looking to, who, to false gods and idols for their security and worth and coming up empty, Lord, help us to go to them with the one who, is, who never fails. And if that means partnering in financial ways to do it, Lord, then, sh then show us how to do it. That you would get glory. That it would be a fragrant and pleasing offering in your sight as we give to you. Make us a people who reflect that picture. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.